Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic, your virtual oasis of keep it simple Catholicism. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and today we're going to continue with our celebration of the final month of the Marian year, October 2021 through October 2022, and our regular observance of October as the month of the Rosary. <clears throat> Last week we talked about the history of that beloved Marian devotion, and today we will continue by turning to the mysteries of the rosary and what they mean for us today. Also, later in the program, you know that Catholics are obliged to assist at Holy Mass on all Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation. In fact, it's a sin, a mortal sin, to miss Mass through your own fault, that is, without a grave reason. And yet the majority of Catholics in the United States, over 75%, do not regularly attend Sunday Mass. So I wanted to share with you a priest's challenge for all Catholics, which is to worship at Sunday Mass as if your salvation depended on it, because it does. Also, we've got an update on some grade A prime nonsense flowing out of a well-known Catholic university and what it has in common with the Synod on Synodality. But to begin the program, as always, we've been kind of bouncing back and forth between the uh, ordinary and extraordinary form calendars for the gospel of the uh, Sunday for the week. And uh, this week we're going to do the extraordinary form gospel for the 19th Sunday after Pentecost, which is taken from Matthew 22 verses 2 through 14. It is the parable of the wedding banquet. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent forth his servants to summon those who had been invited to the banquet, but they refused to come. Then he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, my banquet has been prepared. My oxen and my fattened cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they ignored his invitation. One went off to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged, and he sent forth his troops, who destroyed those murderers and burned their city to the ground. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy of that honor. Go forth, therefore, to the main roads and invite everyone you can find to the wedding banquet. The servants went forth into the streets and gathered together everyone they could find, good and bad alike, and so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to greet the guests, he noticed one man who was not properly dressed for a wedding. My friend, he said to him, how did you gain entrance here without a wedding garment? The man was silent. Then the king said to the attendants, bind his hands and feet and cast him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, as I've mentioned before, parables are allegorical stories that are meant to be provocative. I mean, after all, who wouldn't go to a royal wedding feast if they got an invitation from the king? I mean, how insulting would it be to refuse that invitation? How unthinkable to abuse the messengers. But the allegory is, is clear. The king is our heavenly father, and his only begotten son is the bridegroom who is espoused to the church. The feast is made up of the doctrines of the gospel and the sacraments, especially baptism and Holy Eucharist, 
along with the other means of salvation and the eternal joy that flows from them. The king's servants who were sent to invite the guests are the prophets and the apostles and the disciples of Christ. And those who were originally invited are the Israelites. And here's where it gets provocative, because they did do the unthinkable. They despised the honor intended for them and persecuted and put to death the prophets and then later the apostles. So the destruction of the city refers to the destruction of Jerusalem at the time of the Babylonian captivity and also prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. So in place of the original guests, others, that is the Gentiles, were invited from all the corners of the earth, not just the good, but the bad as well. He said, go to the main roads. That's the Broadway that leads to destruction. And those who were on that Broadway are now invited to take the place of the chosen people at the royal wedding banquet, which banquet signifies the church, both on earth and ultimately in heaven. And then in verse 11, we encounter a man who doesn't have a wedding garment. Now, first of all, the wedding garment uh, signifies charity which shows itself through good works. So the fact that the man without the wedding garment was silent when he was questioned by the king shows us that no one is going to be able to excuse himself before God for not having and practicing the virtue of charity, since it is available to everyone if only we ask it from God and then are willing to practice it. You know, they say it was customary for wedding guests guests in the ancient world to be given wedding clothes to wear at the banquet. So again, it would be unthinkable to refuse to wear those garments. Uh, Naturally, it would insult the host, uh, who could only assume that the guest was either so arrogant that he felt like he didn't need to wear the garments, or that he didn't want to participate in the wedding celebration. And so the wedding garment also represents sanctifying grace, which clothes the soul at baptism. You see, one enters the church through baptism as one enters the wedding banquet through a door. And Christ offers this garment of sacramental grace to everyone, but each one of us must choose to accept this gift in order to enter the king's banquet. And and most especially, this garment of grace is necessary to approach the banquet of the blessed sacrament. Jesus himself teaches, he that believes and is baptized will be saved. And he also said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. But you must not approach Holy Communion unless you are wearing the wedding garment, that is, unless you're in the state of grace. And it's an important teaching to to emphasize today when a majority of Catholics no longer believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And so you can imagine my delight when I read a recent document from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops called The Mystery of the Eucharist in the Life of the Church, which states, and I quote, One is not to receive Holy Communion in the state of mortal sin without having sought the sacrament of reconciliation and received absolution. As the Church has consistently taught, a person who receives Holy Communion while in a state of mortal sin 
not only does not receive the grace that the sacrament conveys, he or she commits the sin of sacrilege by failing to show the reverence due to the sacred body and blood of Christ. St. Paul warns us that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. A person should examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Those are the words of St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 29. To receive the body and blood of Christ, this is the document still. It says, to receive the body and blood of Christ while in a state of mortal sin represents a contradiction. The person who, by his or her own action, has broken communion with Christ and his church, but receives the blessed sacrament, acts incoherently, both claiming and rejecting communion at the same time. It is thus a countersign, a lie. It expresses a communion that, in fact, has been broken. Amen. Couldn't have said it better myself. Now, this document was published in January of this year because, as, as you may or may not know, uh, the USCCB, the uh, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, is currently engaged in promoting a campaign for national Eucharistic revival, encouraging Catholics around the country to rediscover the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. See, this is a good response. This is a positive response to you know, uh, polling data that shows that a majority of Catholics don't know uh, the doctrine of the real presence or don't understand it or understanding it, don't believe it. You know, they're asking the faithful to pray for a revival of Eucharistic piety. Not only that, but they're sending preachers out to dioceses all across the United States to promote the church's teaching on the Holy Eucharist. And they're also sharing insights and inspiration. Uh, through an email newsletter called The Heart of the Revival. And, uh, you know, I, I don't go to the USCCB website for this. They've set up a special website for it. It's called EucharisticRevival.org. Okay, EucharisticRevival, all one word, dot O-R-G. And the object of this uh, uh, campaign for Eucharistic Revival is to cultivate a Eucharistic revival within our own country, specifically by guiding hearts to individual conversion. And and that's just wonderfully traditional <laughs> when you think about it. It's about the individual conversion. It's about changing hearts. And the, the whole program is set to climax with an old-time Eucharistic Congress that's going to be held in a stadium in uh, Indianapolis in the year 2024. So credit where credit is due, kudos to the National Conference of Catholic Bishops for their efforts to promote Eucharistic revival. And I encourage you uh, to visit that website, EucharisticRevival.org. You can read the document that they put out in January.
right. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Here's a headline that caught my eye the other day. Notre Dame professor offers abortion access to students, calls pro-life critics white nationalist Catholic hate groups. <laughs> the professor in question is one Professor Tamara Kay of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. And back on September the 21st, she participated in a panel discussion called Post-Roe America, Making Intersectional Feminist Sense of Abortion Bans. Okay, I'll just, I'll just let that sit there. Uh, she told the Irish Rover newspaper, I'm assuming that's the university newspaper, quote, for me, abortion is a policy issue. And yes, my views run afoul of church teaching. But in other areas, my positions are perfectly aligned with the church. Now, of course, her offer to, uh, you know, to assist the students in having procuring abortions uh, does not only run afoul of Catholic teaching, but also Indiana state law and Notre Dame University policy. So my question is, can we expect Professor Kay to be summarily canceled? Will she lose her position, be fired from her job, get excommunicated? I suspect not. Now, if she'd militated against illegal immigration or drag queen story hour, it'd be a different story, but despising scripture, the catechism, the right to life, no problem. Calling Catholics, uh, pro-life Catholics, white nationalist hate groups? Sure, go ahead. <laughs> the funny part for me is, is she makes this apologetic first strike. Yes, yes, my views run afoul of church teaching, but in other areas, my positions are perfectly aligned with the church. Yeah, that's what we call a distinction without a difference. That's like saying, oh, sure, I'm a murderer, but it's okay because, you know, I would never run a red light. And consider the words, the inspired words of St. James from his epistle, chapter 2, verse 10. And whosoever shall keep the whole law but offend in one point is become guilty of all. It doesn't matter that she chooses to believe some of what the church teaches if she chooses to reject the rest. Someone coined the term cafeteria Catholic to describe those who pick and choose which doctrines they'll believe or not believe. But there's a much older word from the Greek meaning to pick and choose, and that word is heresy. To know what the church teaches and then to reject it, to refuse to follow it, that is the, you know, that's the definition of heresy. As long as Notre Dame employs professors who claim to be Catholic but espouse heresy, they're part of the problem. And I think it's reasonable to assume that a Catholic professor at a prestigious Catholic university knows that it's a sophism to, dis to defend her heresy by claiming to be otherwise orthodox in belief. I mean, because that's what heresy is, to reject some part of Catholic doctrine. Or can it be that she is really so poorly informed uh, intellectually that she doesn't see the contradiction in her position? And that brings us to the Synod on Synodality. Bishop Tobin uh, put out a tweet on Monday uh, where he said, with the emphasis on walking together, circularity, listening sessions, frequent surveys, and fraternal dialogues, is our church becoming too introspective, too self-referential? Jesus told us to go forth to teach and serve, not to sit around and talk about ourselves. <laughs> Well put, because you see the danger of all this lies in the risk of the results of these surveys and listening sessions and dialogues being falsely represented 
as if they embodied the census fidei. See, this is often the claim of those who reject certain teachings of the church, that their position really represents the census fidei or the census fidelium. So, okay, the first question is, what are you talking about? What is the census fidei? Well, the Catechism of the Catholic Church defines it as the supernatural appreciation of faith on the part of the whole people, when, from the bishops down to the last of the faithful, they manifest a universal consent in matters of faith and morals. See, it doesn't mean that the doctrines of the Church are subject to change because of popular opinion. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Obviously, universal consent in matters of faith and morals cannot be represented by an opinion poll of less than 1% of practicing lay Catholics who participated in, in the synod on synodality and who are arguably among the most poorly catechized generation in the history of the Church. And apparently that includes university professors at Notre Dame. And I would also point out that the, the catechism's definition of the census fidei is really just kind of a long-winded way to express St. Vincent of Lorraine's definition of sacred tradition. That which has been believed semper et ubique et ab omnia. That is, always and everywhere by everyone. Novelties need not apply. And yet I suspect, and I hope I'm wrong, but I suspect that at the conclusion of the Synod, which has been moved back from uh, next year to 2024, by the way, I suspect that the progressivists' uh, longstanding call for women's ordination and married clergy and blessing homosexual unions, et cetera, et cetera, as the, the German Synod has already uh, uh, produced, will be presented precisely as the census fidei and, and the, the quote-unquote will of the people. But, you know, we need to understand that, that the church is not a democracy. Our beliefs come from a deposit of faith entrusted to the pope and the bishops by Christ and the apostles, not, you know, a, a popular vote. And the fact is, there's no need for a synod on synodality to understand what's wrong in the church and the world. Uh, to paraphrase Bill Clinton, which, <laughs> which is something you probably wouldn't expect to hear me say, uh, but to paraphrase Bill Clinton, it's the sin, stupid. The bishops, as successors of the apostles, have the mandate from Christ to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, to observe everything that Jesus commanded. See, the duty of the bishops is to point out the narrow way that leads to salvation, not to, you know, poll the faithful uh, to find out if they would prefer to take the Broadway instead. Sin is the problem, and the solution, the only solution, is Jesus Christ. And that's no nonsense. All right, moving on. I recently read a booklet by a young priest who was tasked with going around to Catholic high schools in his diocese to try and get the kids excited about going to Mass. And that would be the ordinary form of the Holy Mass. And I'm sorry I can't <clears throat> call the name of the, the priest or the booklet to mind, but I remember reading how downhearted he was because he kept experiencing this same situation. How after every talk, he would uh, uh, let the kids ask questions, invite them to ask questions. And he said that the first question was always the same. 
how late can I arrive at Mass and still fulfill my Sunday obligation? And the second, he said, was like it. How soon can I leave Mass and still fulfill my Sunday obligation? And he said that the kids' number one objection to Sunday worship is, Mass is boring. And I was thinking about this when I ran across an old article on the Church Pop website by Father Bill Peckman, which was, I guess it was originally a Facebook post. But uh, the headline was, A Priest's Challenge for All Catholics. Worship at Sunday Mass. Your salvation depends on it. And he said that people in his parish, uh, usually parents of the parochial school students, might wonder why I'm so insistent about Mass attendance and worship on Sundays. Uh, He said he's even come to the point where he's contemplated putting it on his tombstone. Please be sure to worship every Sunday at Mass. And he points out five different kinds of Catholics. The first, he said, are, are those who have adopted a secular way of viewing Mass as something nice if you do it, but not entirely necessary. Or uh, he knows some that are bored out of their minds at Mass, he said. He says, I know some that have to wrestle with toddlers throughout Mass and so feel like they've gotten nothing out of it. Uh, He said, I also know some people who are so self-absorbed as to have a distaste to worship anything other than their own desires. And finally, he says, he's known the people that have been hurt rather badly, either by life or by some cleric or layperson in the church. And so he crafted responses to all these different types of Catholics that he encounters. So he says, for those who think it's nice but not necessary, he's got this message. It is necessary. The church refers to the the Eucharist as the source and summit of the faith. Jesus at the Last Supper said, do this in memory of me. The Eucharist, he says, is our direct participation in the sacrifice of the cross. And we receive the needed benefits of that sacrifice, the graces won on the Holy Cross, by the worthy reception of Holy Communion. He said, pair that with the commandment uh, in the Ten Commandments to keep holy the Sabbath day, you know, a part of which is the worship of God, and Mass suddenly becomes very necessary to who we are as Catholics. He said, sometimes we fall into the mistake that if I don't feel like I should have to do something, then that's a valid response. But he says, when, you know, the God whose eternal home you want to share tells you that Sunday Mass is part of the road to get there, then you do it. He also points out that we're not primarily trying to get something out of Mass, although we do. We receive graces, especially if we uh, receive the Eucharist well. But he said we're there to give, to give worship to God in the way that he told us to. And he said, because I care about your eternal salvation, I'm going to challenge you to come to Mass, not only for your salvation, but the salvation of those who are entrusted to your care. He said, so this is a message especially for dads. And that's something, that's a drum that I've been beating for many, many years, that for decades now, all across denominational lines, the one most important factor for whether uh, children continue to practice their faith as adults is, did dad take them to church? Did dad go to church? So this is a really important message for Catholic fathers. If you want your kids to stay Catholic, go to Mass. Now, he said there are those who are bored out of their minds. And his response to that is not everything in the world, you know, not everything was put on earth to entertain you. You know, I mean, 
too many clergy act as if mass is supposed to be some kind of entertainment, but it isn't. And he says, I know it can be boring sometimes. And he says, especially if the priest or deacon doesn't preach well or even coherently, or sometimes the music is dreadful and so on. Uh, and many times he says, mass just seems like a poor production that doesn't speak to the majesty or the mystery of what's actually taking place. And he says, I get that, and that he wished more priests and ministers understood it. However, he says, what you bring of who you are before God is of greater importance. And that doesn't let the clergy off the hook for failing to engender the sense of mystery and majesty that should be present at Mass. But sometimes we have to look beyond that. We have to work beyond those shortcomings and do our best to worship God uh, anyway. And since, he says, I care about your internal salvation, I'm going to challenge you. It's like Abbot McCaffrey used to say, if you don't feel holy, act as if you were. No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We're going over some points in an article that was written by Father Bill Peckman called A Priest's Challenge for All Catholics. Worship at Sunday Mass, your salvation depends on it. And he's talking about the, the different excuses that Catholics give for not going to Mass on Sunday. And uh, to continue with that, uh, the next on the list is those wrestling with toddlers and children. And he says, I get the struggle. And, you know, sometimes it feels like you're herding cats trying to get your children to behave or at least not be a distraction during Mass. But the, the only real way to teach your children appropriate behavior at Mass is to take them to Mass and to show them how to behave, and to make them realize how important it is to you. I mean, Betty and I have six kids, and they're all grown now. But but I get it. I remember. I mean, it was years before I could got to sit through a Sunday Mass without having to, to take out a fussy toddler or accompany some kid to the bathroom or whatever. And now, you know, my older kids have little ones of their own. And so the cycle repeats itself, which is it never ends. But um, I can remember going to a nuptial mass, a wedding in the traditional Latin mass in the order extraordinary form. And there being Novus Ordo friends and family there. And, you know, one of them came to me, he said he was just in awe of how well behaved our kids were. And, and this, all the kids were like 12 and under at the time. Uh, but, you know, for one thing, I think the right encourages it because they're long, even at high mass, there's long stretches at the traditional mass where you can hear a pin drop. So, you know, anything out of the ordinary is like a rifle shot. And that, uh, that atmosphere helps to discourage inappropriate behavior because the kids understand instinctively that something's important is going on because they're all quiet. Uh, you know, whereas the, the Noah's Ordo tends to be, um, you know, different. But, you know, it doesn't matter which mass you attend. You're going to have a, a period of adjustment and you're going to have a period of adjustment for every kid and every kid's different. And you're going to have to judge when to maybe take a kid out of the situation and when to just kind of suffer along with it because it's the only way they'll learn. And yeah, people might look at you funny. I mean, people might look at you ugly. You know, sometimes you might want to hide under the pew. And uh, Father says, first off, shame on those who are shooting you, shooting you dirty looks. 
And he said, if it's you giving the looks, just remember that you needed patience when it was you. So you should extend the patience. And also we should be understanding. I mean, some children have, you know, ADD or, or on, they're on the autism spectrum or, you know, and those things require more patience. And so that you should give the patient that you yourself would want. And he tells parents, you're not going to get that look for me. I'm happier there, you know. And finally, I would say, just remember that Jesus said, suffer the little children to come to me. You know, sometimes it feels like people think that if your kids misbehave, it's because you haven't bothered to tell them that church is a place to be reverent. But don't take it personally. You know, reassure yourself that Jesus knows what kids are like and that he loves them and that he wants them there because he loves having them close by. All right, next on the hit parade uh, is those who are so self-absorbed that they find mass to be irrelevant. Father Peckman says correctly, the world is not about you. And it's really not. Regardless of your, you know, what philosophy you embrace, the fact of the matter is the world is not going to conform itself to your desires. God is not going to become what you want him to be. And and being self-absorbed not only makes you miserable in this life, it, you're taking the chance on being miserable for eternity. Life is more about what you give of yourself than what you take. And Mass is a time to step away from yourself and focus on God. And he says, uh, because he cares about eternal salvation, that's why he's challenging people. And then he gets to the, uh, the last one, I believe, which is to those who have been hurt. And he says, and this is interesting. Father says, I was in this category at one time. He actually left the church, not just left the church, he quit believing in God because of the damage he received to those in the church. And I don't know, you know what his situation was, but he says, I know the pain and the reservation in the name of self-protection that some people feel about going back to Mass. And I get that too in, in a lesser way. I mean, I, I know the resentment of feeling like you've been forced out. You know, when I discovered the indult mass back in the day, I found like I felt like I'd found a pearl of great price. Like I was finally at home. The traditional Latin mass is just, you know, everything I'd been looking for and didn't even know it. Only to have that snatched away by the, the local bishop. And I wound up taking my family to an independent traditional chapel that was outside of the diocese for years until Pope Benedict liberated the old mass and, and we were reconciled with the diocesan structure. Now, Father Peckman's case is more extreme, obviously abandoning belief in God. But even for him, after a few years, uh, it became a desire, he said, to come back and to not be what drove him out. He wanted to be the priest and the Catholic who reached out, who cared, who took care of those who were struggling and not be the cause of the struggling. He said, Everything that drove me away still exists in the church. And it's true with me, too. I'm afraid it's, uh, you know, it's gone for a while, but it's back. Everything that drove me away still exists in the church, he said, but I am determined to be the difference needed. And that is my challenge to you. Going to Mass every Sunday can be hard, but it's worth it. Just know that Christ and his church are not represented by the sins or the ugliness of other, but like Father Peckman said, by his love, which is most perfectly expressed by the cross. And that's no nonsense. 
All right. Um, the Holy Rosary. It's the month of October, and we've been talking about the Holy Rosary because it's the month of the Rosary. And last week we talked about medieval history, the history of the Rosary, how it came about and <clears throat> became the uh, Rosary as we know it today. And now we're going to turn to the mystery of the Rosaries and, and uh, turn to modern times. Uh, in the years 1840 to 1850 are sometimes referred to as the Marian century because of the definition of the dogmas of the Immaculate Conception and the assumption that happened during that time, and also the apparitions of Mary at Lourdes and then at Fatima. So this was a time of important deepening of the Church's understanding of the doctrine of Mary as co-redemptrix and mediatrix of all graces. You know, it was widely assumed that Vatican II would proclaim a fifth Marian dogma, out of those those doctrines, the doctrine of co-redemptrix and mediatrix of all graces. Uh, however, if you know the history of Vatican II, then you know that the schemas, the outlines for the proposed documents that had been prepared for the council, actually organized by Pope St. John XXIII under the auspices of Cardinal Ottaviani and the Holy Office, and with the assistance of a certain archbishop named Lefebvre. But all of those schemas were abandoned you know, a more progressive faction of the bishops known as the Rhine Fathers, because they're primarily from Germany and the Netherlands, they wanted the council fathers to prepare their own schemas. And so all of the original schemas were put to a vote, and, and none was closer than the vote of the Marian document. But it was abandoned as well. Uh, but the Rhine faction only prevailed by 15 votes. So ultimately, Vatican II produced no Marian document at all. And instead, the fathers relegated the council's teaching on Mary to chapter 8 of Lumen Gentium, which is the dogmatic constitution on the church, which presented her not so much as co-redemptrix, but as the model Christian, uh, a model in this sense being someone to imitate, even the model of the church. And that's fine, of course, as far as it goes. But Mary is, is so much more. You know, through a unique privilege of grace, she was immaculately conceived and remained without sin all of her life, cooperating in a unique way in our salvation, precisely as co-redemptrix and mediatrix. But I think the council fathers purposely chose not to emphasize that role, uh, you know, presumably for ecumenical considerations, because they didn't want it to be a stumbling block for our separated brethren. And all that said, I don't have any problem with the dogmatic constitution on the church. I mean, the document is fine, such as it is. Unfortunately, though, the, the spirit of Vatican II, so-called, that which came after the council and which artificially separated the church into conciliar versus preconciliar, suggested that Marian devotion, especially the was pre-Vatican II, and it was virtually abandoned in many sectors of the church. And this was clearly not the intention of the majority of the council fathers or even the document itself. So Paul VI himself, subsequently, after the council, he wrote two documents on Mary and the Rosary, Christi Matri in 1966 and Marialis Cultus for the right ordering and development of devotion to the Blessed Virgin in 1974. In Christi Matri, which was published for the month of the Rosary, Pope St. Paul VI said, and I quote, it is a solemn custom of the faithful during the month of October to weave the prayers of the rosary into mystical garlands for the mother of Christ. Following in the footsteps of our predecessors, we heartily approve this 
and we call upon all the sons of the church to offer special devotions to the Most Blessed Virgin. Now, that hardly sounds like a repudiation of the Holy Rosary. In Mariolus Cultis, he said, From the moment when we were called to the See of Peter, we have constantly striven to enhance devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, not only with the intention of interpreting the sentiments of the Church and our own personal inclination, but also because, as is well known, this devotion forms a very noble part of the whole sphere of that sacred worship in which there intermingle the highest expressions of wisdom and of religion, and which is therefore the primary task of the people of God. So he was obviously on board with uh, devotion to the Blessed Virgin. And in one of her apparitions, Mary said, the prayer of my predilection, okay, that means the one that she likes best, is the Holy Rosary. And she said, for this reason, in my apparitions, I always ask that it be recited. And a, a list of popes as long as your arm have promoted the rosary, and the Church teaches that after the liturgy, it is the best prayer for Catholics to recite in common. You can even gain a plenary indulgence for reciting the rosary in public, and that includes uh, your family rosary, and uh, you, that means you can gain a plenary indulgence every day. And the rosary, we're going to talk about this in greater detail, it's a deeply contemplative prayer where you meditate on the mysteries. And that's what we'll uh, talk about when we return. Uh, in the meantime, stick with us, listen to these messages, and we will be right back with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Talking about the mysteries of the rosary. The, the rosary combines vocal and mental prayer. And the mysteries form a virtual compendium of the gospel. They help us to know God through the intercession of the one human creature who knew him and knows him best, our, his own blessed mother. And if you've been listening to this program, you know that I am a medievalist. And I have really embraced a medieval mentality precisely because I believe that most of the problems in our modern culture derive from bad thinking. And the rosary is a thinking prayer. Our Lady is the virgin most prudent. And prudence is the cardinal virtue that helps us to discern in every circumstances our true good and then to choose the right means for achieving it. So she well knows that creeds go before deeds, as they say. In other words, that we behave as we believe, that we act as we think. And daily meditation on the mysteries of the rosary is good thinking. I mentioned last week that there's uh, several versions of the rosary. There's, you know, the Servite rosary that meditates on the seven sorrows of Our Lady and the Franciscan crown that meditates on her seven joys. Uh, the chaplet of John Paul II, which he called the Luminous Mysteries, which uh, focus on the public ministry of Christ. But what we traditionally think of as the rosary is the prayer given by Our Lady to St. Dominic. And the traditional 15 mysteries of the rosary drive home the four great ends of our religion. 
First off, the joyful mysteries remind us that life and religion are meant to be just that, joyful. God made us to be happy. He put the first man and woman into a world that was a paradise. But even now, with paradise lost, our joy remains. As St. Paul told the Philippians, rejoice always. Again, I say again, rejoice. And the joyful mysteries show us how to obtain that joy, namely by doing God's will, as Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and Zechariah and Anna and Simeon and the shepherds and the wise men, as, as they all did, as they all found happiness by doing the will of God. And so shall we, regardless of our circumstances. The sorrowful mysteries teach us the second great truth of religion, which is that sin is what makes this world a veil of tears. Sin, not doing God's will, that is the path of sorrow. Going our way and not his way is the way to pain and unhappiness. The glorious mysteries teach the third great truth of religion, namely that life has a purpose, a goal, even beyond death. See, for the Christian, life isn't cyclic, and we're not just going around in circles like the pagans of old. Uh, life without purpose is exasperating. Life without meaning is, is maddening. And that's why the hallmark of paganism was boredom and apathy and suicide, not unlike the secularism and relativism of our own day. But while we Catholics mark the passage of time with the liturgical cycle, which follows the cycle of the seasons of the year, for us, life itself is not cyclical, but linear, because we are all of us heading for a destination. We are heading for a coming judgment. See, life is going somewhere, uh, namely either to heaven or to hell. And the glorious mysteries remind us that our destiny is the glorious life beyond life, because we are the children of God, brothers and sisters of Christ, and therefore heirs to the kingdom of heaven. And then finally, you take the 15 mysteries together, and, and we can include the, the luminous mysteries as well. They teach the fourth great truth of our religion, that sanctity is for all of us. Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the church from Vatican II, said that all Christians of whatever rank or status are called to personal sanctity, and that with God's help, it is within our reach. That's why there is a universal call to holiness, because sanctity, holiness, really is for everybody. And the Holy Rosary gets us thinking about these truths, and thoughts, leads, uh, thoughts lead to action. And Our Lady knows that you, you can't meditate on our Lord's life, death, and resurrection day in and day out, year after year, without it having a good effect on you. The rosary changes us, or the, the thoughts that enfold you are the thoughts that mold you. And Our Lady's not asking for a revolution. She, she's not even asking for a reformation, but rather a restoration. The whole of Christianity is a restoration project from beginning to end, to restore the relationship with God that was broken in the Garden of Eden. And this requires a change of heart. And that's why Mary asks us to pray the rosary because it changes hearts. I know this for a fact. It changed mine. And I also know that when hearts change, society changes. 
That's why St. John Paul II said in his encyclical, Rosarium Virginis Mariae, the rosary helps us to be conformed ever more closely to Christ until we attain true holiness. St. John Paul II's uh, promotion of the rosary in that letter was very much like Mary's insistence on the rosary and her apparitions. So I guess we can ask the question, you know, why the rosary? And if the rosary, why especially now? And I believe that John Paul II, as a true son of Mary, was responding to a genuine need among the faithful that prophetically corresponds to our rather dire situation today, uh, most especially widespread apostasy and the crisis of leadership in the church. Because if you think about it, what do you need to pray the rosary? Uh, Or maybe a better question would be, what don't you need? You don't need to get permission from your bishop. You don't need to raise any money. You don't need to convince any committee members. You don't even need to go to the church building. You don't need to do anything except pick up the beads and pray. And even if one day they take your beads away, you still have 10 fingers. So no one can keep you from the rosary. They can keep you from the blessed sacrament. COVID taught us that. But they can't keep you from going to Jesus through Mary, which brings us full circle. You know, I I haven't really mentioned much about Marian apparitions because private revelation, no matter how well known, no matter how timely the message, private revelation is not part of the deposit of faith. And therefore, it's not technically necessary for salvation. But once the church has judged an apparition to be worthy of belief, it is impious, that is to say, irreverent, not to give the apparition and the message of the apparition and the prophecies of the apparition and the devotion of those who are dedicated to the apparition. I say it is impious not to give all of them the respect that they are due. So I want to leave you with this thought. All of the approved Marian apparitions have one thing in common. Our Lady of Lords, Our Lady of Fatima, Our Lady of Guadalupe, Our Lady of Akita, Our Lady of Good Success, Our Lady of Good Help, etc., etc. Whether she appears as a young mestizo girl like she did to uh, Juan Diego, or as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Nordic princess like Our Lady of Good Help, however she's perceived, in every case, it is the same Blessed Virgin Mary that appears. All the messages, all the prophecies, all the apparitions, they're all Mary. And likewise with uh, uh, Marian devotions. doesn't matter if it's the Rosary or the Angelus or the Memorare or the Litany of Loretto. doesn't matter because it's all Mary. 400 years ago, Quito, Ecuador, Mary prophesied that in our days, devotion to her would be a great consolation to the faithful because she is the one through whom Jesus came to us. And heaven has made it clear that Jesus wants us to likewise come to him through Mary. And that's no nonsense. Right, you know, we just have a couple of minutes left. And the other day I asked myself, what would a medieval monk say about the situation we're in today? You know, how would our current crisis strike a man who lived a simple, quiet life in prayer, uh, of prayer and work in a monastery? And then when I did my spiritual reading, uh, Thomas Akempis answered my question for me. Uh, It's from The Imitation of Christ. You know, adversity 
is going to come in our lives, and we shouldn't expect that God is going to spare us from that. Indeed, such trials are good for us if we endure them well. So Thomas says, prepare yourself then to suffer all kinds of adversities and inconveniences in this wretched life, for you cannot avoid them. No matter where you go, they will find you, and no matter where you hide. Oh, no, I'm saying, right, let me read that again. You cannot avoid them no matter where you go, and they will find you no matter where you hide. So it is in life, and there is no avenue of escape but to keep yourself in patience. If you desire to be our Lord's dear friend and to share what is his, then you must drink heartily of his chalice. And obviously he's referring there to our Lord's passion, the chalice that he prayed might pass from him. But he said, not my will, but thine be done. We must drink heartily from his chalice if we wish to be his friends. As for consolations, he says, leave those to his will, and he will arrange them as he sees best for you. But be you prepared to suffer tribulations and to consider them the greatest comforts, saying with St. Paul, I consider that the sufferings we presently endure are nothing in comparison with the glory to be revealed in us. Even though you were alone, even though you alone were able to endure it all. And that's from uh, Book 2, Chapter 12 of The Imitation of Christ. Reminds me of uh, what Mother Angelica once said. She said, Sometimes my worst day, one that's filled with pain and suffering, in the eyes of God is my best day, if I've borne it cheerfully and I've borne it with love. And that's no nonsense. All right, I want to thank you as usual for being with us for this hour. I look forward to it each week, and uh, I hope you do as well. We're going to certainly do it all again next week. A few more things to say about the Rosary and the Blessed Virgin Mary, um, other uh, issues that are kind of coming up that are percolating beneath the surface. Uh, but what I wanted to, to mention before we go is, um, uh, first off, to thank you for your prayers. We really appreciate your spiritual support. And also, uh, it's a tough time of year to ask you for your financial support. If God has blessed you, um, in, in such a way that you can help us out, kindly go to vmpr.org. You can hit the donate button and give us a one-time donation or sign up to be a monthly donor. That'd be wonderful. Um, and also to encourage you while you're there to download our smartphone app. Some folks have been having trouble with some of the podcast platforms. Uh, if you get the app, they're all right there in your smartphone, ready to go at uh, any time, night or day. So uh, thank you for your support. Thank you for listening, and uh, until next time, I want to say that I'll be praying for you. It's great for us. Richly bless you and your family.